60 to 80 percent or maybe more of the people listening to us are addicted to something. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can be free, the only way, is to know God, love God, and walk in fellowship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, Sorry. we're good to go. I have with me today Adam Barber. He is our latest uh, associate in the ministry. Adam joined us not long ago and uh, is quite a bright fellow and is uh, learning a lot of the tech stuff and helping us out. And uh, Adam has a rather unique story to tell. He um, has had some a really rough start in life. The devil had full control of him and uh, has left scars on him from his past. But God took him out of it, did an absolute miracle. And so I'm going to be interviewing Adam and uh, trying to get his story out of him. Adam is not a, a, a public speaker, although he's been ministering some to some, uh, some people. And uh, we're going to see what we can find out about uh, addiction and drugs and alcohol and pornography and how one can get totally free from it. So, uh, Adam, tell us, how did you get started in drugs? At what age? Uh, how did it happen? Well, actually, and thanks for interviewing me, Mike. Uh, I didn't start out with either alcohol or drugs. I actually started out with pornography and then progressed through. At what age? I would say it was about 14 or 15, right around the time, uh, I think right around puberty. And so I just progressed really quickly. I was always seeking a bigger and better thrill. Did it satisfy? It did for a time. Every one of them, uh, it seemed like the amount of time that it would satisfy was just a little bit shorter. And so I had to do bigger, better every time that I went to something else. When did you get involved in drugs and alcohol? I started drinking kind of late in life compared to most of my friends. Most of them have been drinking since 14 or 15, but I was almost 18 years old when I first had a drink of alcohol. And I only drank for about six months because I found painkillers after that. And I found that it was so much easier to take a handful of pills and not have to drink all afternoon. And no one, I thought at least at the time, would know that I was using anything. So uh, how did you access those painkillers? Um, at first, I, I got them from people that would have them, like I would buy them off the street or um, actually, I got to where I was stealing most of them. I kind of, if I came into your house, I'd be raiding your medicine cabinet. You know, I'd always ask to go to the bathroom when I first came in, and that's what I was doing. And, you know, it would be surprised at the amount of things that are out there that you have access to when you're looking. Were you holding down a job at this time? Uh, at first. Uh, and I worked for my parents, so they were a little lax as far as what they would allow, like coming in late and, or not coming in at all. Uh, but that soon, it, it, my addiction got out of hand where I couldn't even show up for work. Or when I did show up, I wasn't even productive. At what point did you realize that this was bringing you down? Hmm. Uh, probably the first time that I went to jail. Um, you know, when, you, when you're sitting in jail, laying on the cold floor and you're detoxing off of, you know, heroin or morphine, you kind of realize that something's not working in your life. This is not working out for the best. Uh, and so, and I had several, several trips to jail and I would get sober for about six months or maybe a few weeks until I started feeling better. 
uh, and then I would go right back to it again. But that was probably the first time I thought that maybe this is not the best way to live because I really wasn't cut out for jail. And how old were you then? I was about 23, 24. So um, what is the, what, the darkness, the, 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 the misery you are brought down to, how low did you get? Um, the things that I would do for drugs and alcohol, uh, the theft, uh, I mean, I would steal anything. It didn't matter what it was. I mean, I've, I've stolen, uh, you know, let's be honest with you, I've stolen my daughter's piggy banks that they had when they were small children. Uh, anything that they had around the house, uh, my parents or anyone else, uh, jewelry, electronics, anything like that, I would take those and sell because obviously I wasn't going to work. You know, I wanted something much quicker than that. And you, even when you do that and you're able to get the drugs and you feel a little bit better, it never goes away. The guilt and the shame and regret of what you have done. And so you have to cover that up with more drugs because you can't live with it. Were your parents religious? I would say that, uh, well, both of them were brought up in, in Christian homes, and most of my family still is in some form of ministry or another. Um, there is not a lot of people in my family that have a background in alcohol or addiction. Uh, I found out that I do have a couple, uh, and it was actually my great-grandfather who became a pastor, but he used to be the town drunk actually over in Lewis County. And so I found that out a few years later, but pretty much I'm kind of an oddity within the family. Well, this is a small town. It was here in Loveville, Linden area? Uh, that was in Hornwald in Lewis Hornwald. County. Hornwald, okay. Uh, so we're talking about small town, rural America, Bible Belt, uh, Christian churches everywhere. Uh, there's no gangs around here or anything like that. So. Uh, were there others like you? Did you feel like you were all alone in this or was it a... No, I managed to find people all the time. It seems like we gravitate towards each other. You know, I've always told my friends, if, you, if you're an addict and someone were to drop you in the Alaskan wilderness, they could come back in an hour and you would have found somebody that's selling drugs up there because we, we will, we'll kind of seek it out. I guess that's that old saying, misery loves company and we love company and we love... Um, being able, there's a lot of fellowship and camaraderie within the drug community. Of course, it's uh, not for the best purposes, but we always seem to find each other. So even when I was in a group of people, I still did feel isolated and alone. Uh, probably that's just um, within my own mind. I just felt kind of out of place. So we would always seek out one another. So how long did this last? How old were you when you uh, got free from drugs? Uh, just about three years ago, like I said, I went through. How old are you now? I am 41. So you were 38? Mm-hmm. That was a long time. Yeah, it was <laughs> quite a long time. You know, I had a few periods of sobriety, and there were maybe, like I said, six months or even a couple of years. But um, I've, been, I've been incarcerated about, about half a dozen times. I've been to rehabs about nine different times. So it, it never really took. <laughs> Why didn't the rehabs work? Uh, but I would get the feeling just a little bit better and then go right back to the same life that I had been leading. You know, I, because nothing really changed about me other than my circumstances. I was still the same person. I just had, didn't have the chemicals in my system. 
What's that compulsion feel like, the, to, the addiction? What's, what, describe it to people that don't understand it. Uh, my uncle used to always say that the devil is a hard taskmaster. And that's what it feels like being under a taskmaster. Or if you've ever seen those sled dogs where they've got a man behind whipping, that's what it feels like because you never get away from it. It's always driving every thought, every action. When you go to bed, you're thinking about it when you wake up because you know that you have to get high. You're not going to have enough to get high. You have to find a way in order to get the money to get high. And it's just a constant struggle, a constant, almost like a full-time job. Hmm. So how did you get free three years ago? Hmm. Well, um, you know, I didn't mention this earlier. Yeah, but what, what did happen <laughs> to your hand right there? Uh, I was an IV drug user. IV. IV, uh, yeah, with a needle, uh, methamphetamine, heroin, any kind of opiates. And uh, one year I hit a vein in here that was close to an artery. And it caused some kind of reaction where the blood flow stopped. And of course, I didn't want to tell anyone that, hey, I've just done a shot of drugs in my arm and it's messed up. So I kept it hidden. And after about seven or eight days, it was uh, so swollen and black, they had to take me to the emergency room. And they had to amputate my forefinger, my thumb, and part of my arm up to almost my elbow. And it took about a year and a half for all of that to heal up. Uh, but that wasn't when I got sober. <laughs> that. Uh, I kept using drugs for about three or four years after that. Still going to jail, uh, still robbing people, still lying, just still. After that kind of damage, after the reaping that kind of harvest, it didn't deter you any? No, it didn't. It may have slowed me down for a little bit, but I learned to adapt. All right. So what finally uh, turned you around? Oh, uh, well, I went to jail this last time in, here in Perry County, and I had been sitting there for about a month, and it might sound sound strange to say this about sitting in jail, but the walls literally felt like they were closing in. And I realized I'm not getting out of here. No one's coming to bail me out. I didn't even have any bail set. And I was sitting on my bunk, and I still remember that it was our, uh, what pod it was in. It was on a pod and room number eight or cell eight. And I was sitting there on my bunk and I was just, felt like I was coming apart, I was going out of my mind. I just, I didn't want to continue to live the same way I'd been living, but I didn't want to die either, because I've always been too much of a coward for that sort of thing. And I just remember, you know, all those messages, all the, all the preaching I'd heard all my life, all these different things that people had said to me, they're just all swimming around in my mind. And, you know, I just, you know, I can't say it, it what type of experience it was but i just at that point i just believed god mm. what he had said what i had heard uh these people that i didn't want to listen to my entire life saying i just believed it and i believed it was personal for me you know it wasn't just true for someone else it was true for me and i didn't have a great experience then there wasn't like what i've heard some people say where they almost hear music or see lights or something i just went to sleep and I was able to go to sleep and rest. And after that, I had to stay about another five months, but that was the first time in my life that I remember being free and as being incarcerated. And, you know, we were able to do things there in the jail, like we had church call two or three times a week. We had Bible study every day. 
And that was the first time I'd ever read the Bible. And I'd grown up in a family full of preachers and pastors and been to uh, revival two, three, four times a week. But that's the first time I was ever able to pick up the Bible and read it. Wow. And so uh, when you got out of prison, how was your compulsion for drugs then? I didn't have that was the compulsion that was completely taken away. That was gone. That was gone, like for drugs and alcohol. Now, uh, I would like to say that I was completely free from everything else, but that would not be true. That would not be the case. Uh, I was still viewing pornography when I was released, and I never really felt a whole lot of guilt about that until one day I had all these different Bible apps on my phone that I was reading, and each week you get a little readout that tells you what you're spending your time on. So I had all of these Bible apps that it was showing the amount of time and then these pornography sites right underneath it. And at that point, it kind of clicked for me that this is a problem. <laughs> I mean, I had to see it in, in, on the screen there in front of me that I'm spending you know, a couple hours a day reading the Bible and then in between, you know, I'm looking at pornography. <laughs> so, uh, and that, that, at that point, you know, I was able to stop viewing pornography, but I was kind of white knuckling it just by the grit of my teeth, as it were. You know, I didn't really become free for that, from that until uh, the same way that I was free from drugs and alcohol. I just believed what God had said that I am free from those things, even though I didn't always feel like I was free from them. I didn't maybe think that, you know, I still would have certain thoughts or urges come through my mind, but I believed that God said that I was free, that I was dead to sin, that the old man that I was is dead. I found that I was faced with a choice of, I'm either gonna believe God or I'm gonna believe my experience. Did you have an intense, were you surrounded by Christians who were supporting you in an intense way? I was, uh, when I was released, my probation officer had suggested that, well, actually the court suggested uh, very firmly that I attend meetings and attend church. And there was there's a local group here that they had just started about two months prior to my release. I went and met the group leaders there, started attending, volunteering, finding things to do. So very quickly, um, I was surrounded by a lot of people that genuinely had my best interests at heart, people I could talk to, people I could fellowship with, not just while I was there, but even after the meetings, after services. So how would you, what would you tell other people right now who are listening to you that are addicted to drugs or pornography or alcohol or any other substance or activity, what would you tell them they could do to be free? They, they're, many of them are right where you were. They're, they've quit many times, they've tried, but the compulsion just controls them. What would you tell them? Hmm. Okay, well, my answer is, might be a little different than what most people give, and that is to stop trying to get sober. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, and the reality is if we could do something to free ourselves from alcohol, drugs, any other type of sin, we would do it. It has a hold on us that cannot be broken by our best effort, by uh, different self-help programs and things like that. They can all teach us something and we can learn something from them, but it's, it's a, has a grip on us that we can't shake on our own. And God is the only one that can do that. One of the major 
uh, 12-step fellowships even says that in their literature. It says there's one who has all power, and that one is God. May you find him now. So, you know, I know a lot of times people feel like oh, this is just some Bible thumper telling me this, but this is everywhere. Even in secular literature, they recognize that it takes the power that is greater than you, which is God, to do that. And so what I mean by, and I want to be clear about that, is when I say to stop trying to get sober, is I'm not saying to not go to meetings. I'm not saying not to have a, a sponsor, do step work, all those things, because they're all good and they benefit you. But that, but not to trust into those things in order to get you sober and to keep you sober. That comes from God and God alone. And we can believe him. And whether or not you're in a treatment center or you're just released from jail or you're sitting in your car miserable, you can believe God and he can change your life right there. I feel like some people listening to us are thinking strictly in terms of using God to get free from the pain of addiction. In other words, how can I use this tool of God to get free from my suffering? And that's not it at all. It wasn't in your life, was it? In other words, you sought a relationship with God for the relationship itself, mm -hmm. not just to free you from alcohol or drugs. Yeah, I went with no reservations or no, um, I didn't have any criteria of what I wanted God to do. It's like, well, I'll believe you, but I want you to do this, this, and this, or if you do this, then I'll believe you because I didn't have anything. And I'm actually grateful that I was in jail and couldn't get out because I couldn't set any requirements for my belief. I just went to him broken and empty-handed, and that's all I had. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of people today addicted. I'd say that 60 to 80 percent or maybe more of the people listening to us are addicted to something. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can be free only way is to know God, love God, and walk in fellowship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really the only way. I have known hundreds of people, maybe thousands in my life, who've been freed from all kinds of addiction just like that. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have impulses or compulsion afterwards, but the thing is, they're overcomers. They do overcome. Sometimes there are relapses briefly, but they're brief. And the end result is when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will enjoy, your life will be filled with fellowship with Him, and that takes the place of all those other compulsions. It becomes a greater compulsion to know Him, love Him, and be loved by Him. And that's what frees us from our addiction. So, Adam. Been good to talk to you, and Adam is going to be a, a vital, is a vital part right now of our ministry, and is going to be more so. Uh, so this just been three years. God can use you. God can, uh, uh, people can use, just like God uses you. This, God has a place for you. You don't have to continue to be walked on. You can rise up and get the victory in your life. Okay, Adam, great, good to talk to you. 